Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. So hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am sitting with, virtually sitting with, like usual, uh, with Dr. Natalia Vila. So Natalia, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's it's so funny to, to say that like, I'm, I'm welcoming you to the show because... Uh, you know, we've worked together over the years and become friends and, and now I'm saying, Hey, come and join the podcast and have to be so professional. Right. But it's, <laughs> it's, uh, we'll try to keep it just like as, as two colleagues chit chatting and stuff too. And I think there'll be some interesting stuff that will come out of it. So, um, can you just give a very, uh, brief summary of who you are and what you do? As a well, I can give a little prelude there. You're a retina specialist, but maybe just Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are and what exactly your job involves. Okay, yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, just like to thank you. I think I'm super excited to be part of this podcast with you. And I feel that we did have so many conversations, like the one we're having right now, that uh, once in a while we would have the opportunity to share. So. I think it's uh, actually really fun that we can we can share that with other people because that's something that we we would actually do. Um, so yeah, no, I I think um, I would like to introduce myself, saying that I'm a doctor, I'm an eye doctor, I'm a retina specialist, which is a super specialty in ophthalmology, and I specifically do retina surgery, um, which is um, to explain that it's the surgery at the back of the eye. So my background. Um, it's well, I, I, I am from Spain, so I did part of my training in Spain, then I completed my training in Canada, then I had the opportunity to work in the UK, so I've been in different places, and now I'm currently working in, in Canada. And uh, I think we met at the moment that I was actually doing some basic science research, and that's when we actually had the opportunity to work together, which is something also on, on on my background that I've been always uh, interested in and try to combine both things. So I have a clinical side of, there's a clinical side of my work and, um, and the research side as well. So, but as a retina surgeon, like what mm-hmm. are your more, what are the more common types of surgery you would do? In retina surgery. So again, the retina is at the back of the eye, it's inside the eye. So anything that's going on there, you have to go in the eye. So Retina surgery, it's, uh, we, we operate with a microscope. So we go inside the eye and then if there is any bleeding, any trauma, anything that's going on there or retinal detachment, we would fix that. So it's a posterior approach to be able to heal anything going on in the eye. I'd say trying to simplify that, but one of the surgeries that we do most commonly, it's called vitrectomy and basically it means that we are uh, working with very, very small instruments in, inside the eye. Fair, fair enough. Mm-hmm. No, that's, uh, that's, that's a fair, that's a fair uh, description. Um, so you had mentioned that you worked in Spain and then Canada and then the UK and then Canada again. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows where next, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you never know. Now, what, you never know. Um, did you come across any differences I guess and how medicine or maybe more specifically ophthalmology is practiced in different countries or in different even in different 
centers within the same country? That's a good question. It is different, right? It's, I think I was fortunate enough to work in developed countries and every single country had uh, universal, universal healthcare, meaning that was uh, a system that the, the, the population would have free access to healthcare. So I think that's, that I was lucky or always interested in working in this type of medicine. And the three places I work actually were where would offer that, which changes completely if you would be working in a, in a country that it's private practice. So here, despite having this universal care, also it's very different, right? So it's there, you know, part of the logistics regulations that are different in, in each country. So that makes a difference on the access that you would have some certain medications, how fast you would get that and what you can offer. So obviously it's different, but it's different also the culture and, and the patients that you're treating, right? So I always found this very interesting because it's uh, different the dynamics that you may have with the patient as well. And, and I think an important factor is also the culture here. I, in Canada, for example, I think um, the Canadian patients and French Canadian patients are especially really nice people. So it's really pleasant to work with them or to, you know, to, to have the opportunity to, to take care of them. And maybe one of the reasons is that US, it's the neighbors and, and they know that crossing the border, maybe the access, it's not so easy. So then it's, it's a nice, I think it's, it's a nice relationship with the patient and, and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see that, right? Which is a little bit different what it would be probably in the UK or would be in Spain. So yeah, answering your question, I think it's, it's quite different um, even each country has different protocols and do things completely different and things that would not be completely allowed in a place are completely normal in another place, which um, it's a good exercise for yourself, right? To reflect on, on medicine and, and, and what's practice, good practice. So at least I think being exposed to different things, it, it's, it, it uh, gives you a different perspective as a doctor. And, and for me, it's been actually a very interesting process. I probably just, helps you develop that skill set and working in different teams right it's like you said, different yeah. people with different training backgrounds uh, uh or were trained in in different ways for the same career path um so it probably just makes you uh, you know when you're working in that environment i imagine as a surgeon of course you have to be very technically skilled but you probably have to have um how do i say it? whether it's leadership skills or you know being able to work in a team dynamic and working with diverse people, I'm sure that alone is a skill that needs to be developed as well to have a, a successful surgical team, right? Yes, it's, I, I think it's uh, for sure key for success, right? You're working in a team. And that's every time you sign a new hospital, actually. It can be in different countries, but, you know, a hospital is like a small town. You know, it's like I, I think I always have that impression when I sign a new place because there are certain dynamics that are always the same, but there's a lot of people working there. You know, at least in my case, as a surgeon, you will have interactions with uh, uh, nurses in the, in the operating room, with the, the anesthetists in the operating room. So when you start in a new place, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's when it's starting from zero and understanding how things work there, what's the culture in that hospital, how you can fit in. And then ultimately, right, you, you, you want to, to uh, work in a way that it's effective, that it's, uh, you know, for good care. And that means to have a good team, right? Or work in, uh, and work together in a, in a good team. 
and that sometimes takes some it can take some time when you're starting in a new country um, I found completely different the way I would interact with the nurses in in the UK or the way that I would interact with the nurses here you know so it's uh you need to learn that that part as well and I think it's uh yeah, it's, you, you have to build that skill set in order to be able to, to do what you really have to do, which is take care of the patient, right? So it's, uh, it's um, yeah, it's a different part to, to also learn uh, how to take care and, and practice medicine because at the end, all these interactions are equally important to, to succeed, right? It's, uh, for me, it's been very interesting actually to, to see uh, you are more observant at the beginning, just trying to understand um, and then I think once you've done it once, it's, it becomes easier the second time, right? So every time you sign a different hospital, then you you already know um, some some sort of patterns, some sort of ways to work. So then you learn much faster. Okay, so I want to just I want to whether I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it or not, but I'm you know when you said how you deal with nurses in the UK versus nurses in Canada, um, do you have any specific examples or? do you not want to go down that road? I'm just, I'm just curious. Uh, it's very, you know, ominous, I guess, when you're, when yeah. you're telling, saying, and I'm curious if there's anything specific that comes to mind and how those interactions are different. Yeah. I'm trying to think other than in the UK, they have a lot of tea all the time and they, they stop, they stop to have tea and cookies, which I respect that. That was good. But I think that, for example, the protocols there are, are totally different, right? So here, I, I always felt that it was more efficient. It's a very efficient way. So the, I, since the very time I started, I think that the nurses were, um, yeah, very efficient. In the UK, the protocols, they're very strict sometimes. So um, it would change the complete dynamic in, in, a, in an operating room, right? In a way that um, I always found it was, was quite different. So I, I guess that he, um, I think here probably you are able to organize your operating room in a different way, or I got to organize this in a way that uh, um, you can decide how you do it. UK, it's, it's more strict with, with certain protocols. I don't know how to explain. I think that um, at the end, there's some, some mentalities that are more conservative, some mentalities that are more open. Here, I always found it easier in, in a way. Um, they were open to the change, to adapt to the way that you would be working and, and things like that. No, that sounds... answers your question. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I think, think so. I, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't say any, I, it doesn't anything specific comes to mind other than something that was shocking to me at the beginning when I was working in a clinic there, they would bring me tea and cookies. <laughs> which that's I thought it was really cute. Yes. That, yes, that's exactly. A, that's that's so amazing. It, here, it was very important there. You know, here, here, here. is just co coffee, but no coffee. Cookies. Yeah, so that's it. Coffee, <laughs> yes. and yeah. more coffee. Um, so you talk about protocols. Um, you had the opportunity to work in both UK and Canada during COVID. Um, mm -hmm. How has COVID changed or impacted in any way uh, your work environments, whether in the UK or Canada or both? Hmm. I think it would not be fair to compare because UK was the first wave and Canada, I was here for the second wave, right? So we all learn from the first time. So I think the second time, everybody was more ready. But 
UK, I don't think it has been an example um, to follow in, in some respects. Um, and the beginning, I think, was a bit of a challenge. It was a challenge everywhere. I don't think uh, it was a country that, for sure, some countries deal much better with it, but uh, UK was, was a challenging time for everybody. Um, not, you know, doesn't matter if you were an ophthalmologist or any, any person working in the hospital, we, we had to deal with the unknown, the uncertainty, the fear of not knowing what's going on. And then depending on certain decisions that uh, would have a direct impact and we're still not, we're not knowing what was going on, right? So there, there was some fear there. Here, we, it was, to me, it was so much easier, right? So we, we already learned from it. So it was uh, a different way to deal with it. So I think that that was, yeah, that was the, the experience I had, but I, I would find it challenging anyways. It means that things are changing all the time that you had to adapt, you had to be ready for any change anytime in a way that would have an impact on, on clinical activities and not only for the COVID patients that obviously that, that was a priority to keep, uh, to take care of those patients, but there were many other patients that they needed care as well, right? That's the other side of it. It's like, it doesn't stop the patients that they have problems. It did not take a break because it was COVID, right? That still happens. So then I think as a physician, you are also dealing with that. You know, saying that you would like to be offering care, care to, to all these patients. And it was very difficult here and there, right? I think it doesn't matter where you were. I think that was quite universal, right? Priorities were clear and, and other things were, were difficult to, to, to be taken care of. Well, I think that one thing that stood out or stands out from our conversations back in the spring whenever mm -hmm. things were really just kind of blowing up uh, uh, in terms of caseloads over in the UK. Uh, one of the things that stands out in my memory is how you were indicating, like as a doctor and most doctors seem to be stepping up and, and willing to, you know, be put on COVID wards, for example, even as an ophthalmologist mm -hmm. to, to uh, help these patients and, and, and certainly willing. Um, mm. But even in the face of all that, it seemed like, um, you know, medical supplies like PPE was, yep. was not available in some cases. So it's like, I remember these conversations where we are saying, Hey, it's like, I'm a doctor, you know, I have a duty to assist patients and I, I will, but like, you know, there's a shortage of a 95 masks and, and other yep. protective gear. And it's like, you can't be going in dealing with these COVID patients and then going back to the ophthalmology clinic and seeing a hundred patients a day, like, it's just, it was a yeah. lot of, uh, it seemed like there was a lot of fear and confusion and, uh, um, back then. And I guess, yeah, it's now, yes. you it, know, when you're going through the second wave here, I guess there was, you know, you didn't have the exact same problems, right? Exactly. We, we didn't have to deal with that. So we, that was not a problem, but you know, back in the UK, that was not the only place that they struggled to have the, the PPE, right. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a moment of, I think, as you said, confusion, probably, because you still need to keep doing things. And, well, I, I, well, I, as an ophthalmologist, I was not working in ICU, but uh, still 50% of, of, my, of my department was redeployed to uh, a palliative care in, in COVID, right? So uh, everybody had to be ready to do whatever it takes to to the, the, the circumstances. And um, we never had that experience before, right? Or we were not 
completely ready for it. I think even if you're ready for certain things as a doctor or you have to deal with emergencies and you, you, you can call it, but we were not ready for something like this. And uh, I think some people had uh, to really step up more than, another, than others, but uh, we all uh, had that experience of, yeah, I'm going to work and I had to buy a, 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 a mask in Amazon because I don't know what to do, right? I don't know what, what I'm gonna find that day. And at the end of the day, you, you have to do something. So it, it was, um, yeah, it was something we, we probably, we all look back and, and uh, learn from a lot of things. But uh, I think that the uncertainty and the fear was mostly uh, the first thing that comes to mind at that moment. Yeah, and I think that it must have been difficult as, you know, when you're, you specialize and subspecialize and you spent, you know, however many years uh, doing that, you know, beyond the basic medical school training to then find yourself, uh, not you specifically, but just generally mm-hmm. doc- doctors who are redeployed to uh, emergency care uh, or palliative care for COVID patients, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, you, you might have been, you know, 10 and 15, 20, 25 years for some doctors yeah, uh, yeah. out of that general, you know, uh, doing that in medical school, for example. And now it's yeah. like you're, sh- you know, shoved back into that and saying, here, you're a doctor, do this. It's like, well, I'm an ophthalmologist or I'm a dermatologist. I'm not a, you know, uh, yes, palliative, yes. palliative care doctor, right? So that must have been difficult I, I guess to uh to navigate for people who had to do that yeah absolutely I think that for sure you can it's easy to say yeah you you were trained on that and you have the knowledge and you should have certain skills but you probably have to spend more time during your specialty that has nothing to do with all this than the time that you actually were you, you had some training on on those basic skills right or different type of set of skills so it's really hard because at the end you you know it, it's really hard in terms to do you want to provide the best care possible, right? And and then suddenly you have to know certain things that you you really don't know or you never managed, right? Or you never really were a doctor in that needed the skills of being in an ICU or things like that. So um, you feel you know your responsibility, and it's it's try to to do it, and you want to do it, but obviously that was uh, that was a bit of a challenge for. For a lot of people, you know, for a lot of people, I think that um, everybody wants to to step up and and do what it takes, but uh, it comes with uh, a lot of things to be able to do that, and and it was definitely not easy for a lot of people. But you also saw, you know, a lot of kindness, a lot of good intentions, and you know, they they keep saying the same thing: we're all in the same boat. Yeah, sure, it it, it was like that, but and and you saw. A lot of, um, I would say, kindness also around uh, these gestures, not only, not only in, in, in medicine, right? Or not only in, 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 at the hospital specifically, you know, it's a lot of people try to help, a lot of people try to do a lot of things uh, that those days, which was actually, um, it made you feel good as well, right? It's, it's, uh, you are the one who kind of have the skills to, to do something, but everybody else was also trying to do something about it. It's tough. I, you know, I've talked with you and other friends who are physicians and, and different specialties. And um, I think that we don't always, the general public doesn't always hear 
the stories of physicians, for example. So in this case, you having to, or you know, a number of people in your department having to be redeployed to a palliative care unit, and just what that meant for them, and a lack of PPE, and uh, you know, fears. I mean, I'm sure there were there was a lot of emotion running through, um, you know, the, the yeah, teams of people who were being redeployed, and fear for you know, maybe they're maybe I'm an ophthalmologist and I, you know, I, my mother lives with me who uh, needs some care and I'm taking care of that person. And now I'm saying, now you're going to work in palliative care with COVID patients saying, yeah. well, you know, and you don't hear some of these stories. What you hear is, uh, you know, such and such a hospital has, you know, redeployed, whatever, 25 physicians from different departments to help tackle the, you know, the caseload. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, way to go hospital, which is great, but you don't, hear the the uh the other side of that from the physicians and how much it was a struggle for many people right yes yes i think it was very intense it was very very intense it's like not only what we were all seeing at the news you were hearing that you know 24 7 true or not true but you know the, the the information that you were receiving was massive right all the time then trying to keep up or understanding something as a doctor with, with papers, with information, it, it was crazy to, to be able to, to even understand all that. Um, and then, you know, the personal experience, the personal, and also, you know, for sure, um, the stress that that was causing in, in the individual uh, itself, but also the family around it, right? It's, it's suddenly, it's not only you, right? There are many people that were also having uh, problem. Well, I think there was a lot in the media also showing that, right? The stress that would cause in a family as well. And some people would not see, you know, uh, uh, even this living in a different place. They were offering some sort of hotels. In my, in my hospital, they were offering hotel rooms to stay there, um, you know, childcare. You know, it's like all these uh, arrangements to, to be able to do that even safely. I'm not even sure it was safely at the, safe at the beginning, right? We didn't even know, but uh, yes, it was it was very intense for many people. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to switch to something a little more yeah. fun. <laughs> so, you know, we can talk COVID, and, and I know you and I yeah. have exchanged a lot of stories um, over over time uh, over this past year. You told me a story, a fun story, once. Um, I don't remember the entire story here, but maybe you can share with people who are listening. And it had to do with John Lennon's sister. So that's the key. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you tell that story? Yes, yes. So I did work in Liverpool. And that was my experience in the UK. And I guess, um, you know, we, we all know something about Liverpool and that, uh, that the Beatles come from there, right? So you will hear the music all day long when you're there. And my experience there was uh, <laughs> I was in a clinic one day and... I remember finishing the clinic and then suddenly I've never seen so much security in, in, the, in the ophthalmology clinic. And I see you know, chief of the department, it starts seeing a lot of people and a lot of security. And I it's like, what's going on, right? So you don't know exactly what happened. And all was around a box that had inside John, Glenn, John Lennon's glasses, right? Which I thought was, um, um, well, I did not expect that. And the one who was there was actually John Lennon's sister, who for some reason they, they needed to check something about the, the eyeglasses that he had in our department. So 
I would never have imagined that an eyeglasses would have the amount of security around that. I thought something major was going on at the hospital that I don't know. But yeah, so that's what happens in Liverpool. Um, it's real. They exist, right? So you see that uh, it's uh, the Beatles town, but it's true. <laughs> Things like that just, happen. So I thought it was, it was a cool experience. Yeah. just wonder what, what would, uh, I guess, what were people looking for if it was his sister? What are they trying to understand about his glasses? I guess. I don't know. I, I guess I, if, you, you know what, if you're the Beatles, I mean. Everything, everything's special, I guess, right? Your running <laughs> shoes, your glasses, your, the coffee mug you drank out of, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, know I don't remember. I think somebody told me the price of those glasses. I don't remember. I just can't, I don't even want to remember, but that was something absolutely crazy. And I think, um, no, they, I think they just wanted to document exactly the prescription of the eyeglasses, right? So you can actually do that. Um, so you would know if the refractive error that, that John Lennon had. So that's a way, an indirect way to know, right? If he was a myop, hyperop, or any any refractive error that, that he had, that's why he was wearing glasses, right? So um, for some reason, they, they needed to check that, or wanted to check that, or I, I didn't know the specifics or the details, but they decided to do that uh, uh, that day. <laughs> well, that's, that's funny. It's an interesting story. So it just still kind of, you got to wonder why, why, what's the reason behind, I don't know. behind this, right? This is, so I don't know. know who wanted to pay so many millions to, or yeah. many millions for that. They needed to make sure that the prescription was right. Who knows? I you know, know. If, if you want to sell it, you need to make sure what you got. Fair, fair, I guess. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So I wanted to switch gears a little here again uh, to talking about uh, let's start with the company you were working with called iBionic. Can you give a little, yeah. just a very brief background of what the company was working on, how you got involved, what their vision was, and what ultimately happened with the company? Yes, sure. Um, so I did collaborate with iBionics. iBionics was a company who developed a very cool, interesting technology for um well, bionic technology in order to treat patients with RP and, and also macrodegeneration or retinal conditions. That company was created uh, a few years ago and there was a lot of research done in Australia. And here, the University of Montreal, they were in charge to develop the surgical technique to be able to implant this technology in patients. So I was uh, fortunate to be invited to collaborate in this project. Um, and I did collaborate with, with them for about a year. So basically my job was to work in uh, trying to develop the surgical technique to, to implant this technology. And, and I, well, I, I, I that, that was a team at the University of Montreal in charge of that. I, um, we, we, we work with an engineer as well. So it's a different team working with that, a big team actually. And I think we did a great job. We think we, we, it was a fascinating project to me in order to be able to, um, to understand, you know, the, 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 the technology that they developed to be able to implant that and make it possible. And I think that was actually very exciting and, and a good challenge. And there was a lot of efforts. I think the progress was really, really good. It was very, very promising. 
unfortunately, sometimes uh, the market, uh, it's more complicated than that. And for me, that was something probably new. I just, I think my, my background as a clinician, you're not used to, to, to it. And uh, I think despite, it was a very interesting solution. It was a very interesting technology and, and we did work really hard to, to be able to implant that in patients. Um, was not uh, the main interest in the market. And despite some patients probably would benefit from it, now probably the research is moving towards different uh, directions. And, and unfortunately the project stopped. So um, I don't think we'll see that in patients ever. You, I, I'm not sure if that's gonna change in the future, but at this moment, um, there's a lot of research being done. There's a lot of uh, efforts, a, a lot of investments already, but that never really uh, was available in the market. You know, it's it's interesting and it's also frustrating, right? So I, I remember you had put me in touch with, uh, I think it was Suzanne, right? Who was the CEO yes. of the company. Yeah, the CEO of the company, yeah. Yeah, and there was another, another guy, I forget his name offhand, but, um, and actually I had the they gave me their, uh, their pitch sheet, I guess, because they were trying mm-hmm. to do some fundraising because I, I know a few people um, who are venture, venture capitalists in yep. this, do- this domain are uh, investing in some med tech technologies. Mm-hmm. And uh, tried, I tried to put this in front of them because I personally benefit from this type of technology yes. being implanted in patients as, as a patient with uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So, mm-hmm. um, and then... I remember, you know, hearing that the company, uh, well, Suzanne had had indicated the company need to raise, you know, it wasn't that much. It was like, uh, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars or three hundred thousand dollars just to continue on for the next six months or something. And mm-hmm. eventually, this uh, it just dried up, and it, it sounded like such a promising technology. I mean, I'm not an expert in evaluating how promising some technologies are, but just from what I knew about it and from speaking with you. And others, others involved in the project, it seemed like it had a lot of potential. And it, correct, me if, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the main engineers behind this technology was the guy who was involved with developing cochlear implants. Exactly. Correct? Yes, that's, yeah. that's, that's correct. So, so and some experience of just taking a, a device right through to mar- market and uh, becoming you know, massively available. So it seemed like there was an all-star team behind this and the technology was solid. And funding just wasn't there. And it just seemed like as a patient, that's frustrating because you think, oh, we're just waiting for a company or researchers mm-hmm. to develop this, this yes. uh, you know, fantastic device or uh, medicine or something. Mm-hmm. And some of these might have actually been developed and have just gone by the wayside already that people could have benefited from. And that's, it's something I don't think a lot of patients realize. And as a, as a patient, it's hugely frustrating when, when you hear these things, yes. you know? So uh, to think that maybe there's technologies that could be helping, you know, so, for example, someone in my stage of, of uh, blindness, right? Yeah. And, uh, but I think it's important for people to, to recognize that, I mean, it, I, all this. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I think that we, we have now the perfect example to understand that the whole world, you know, in the middle of the pandemic and suddenly everybody understands that research is really important because we need the vaccine, right? We all need a vaccine. We are all living that. So all the efforts are put into that. 
right? And it happened, right? Did, did it happen? It, it would be insane, right? To think that something would, could happen, I think quickly, if you think about it. Um, if we would put all the same efforts, right? In every single thing that it's needed, it would happen as well, right? So unfortunately, all these efforts are not put it all the time in every single thing. Um, and as, as you said, I'm sure there's, for me, it was no question that, that that technology would help patients. And there's, you know, there are different stages of the disease. There are different type of disease. There are, there are many things, right? But there's for sure patients that will benefit from it. It is true that nowadays, probably the market, it's um, moving towards different type of treatments, right? We were talking about different um, genetic treatments. So it is true that it's all evolving towards that, but we are yet not, we are not there. There's a lot of work to do. There's still some research going on. We'll see how much effort it's put into that too, right? We'll see how long it's gonna take, but all these patients that are already waiting, right? They may not make it to it. They may not make it to these new technologies that maybe are gonna save uh, certain certain conditions that are gonna treat certain conditions. So there's just still, you know, something that you could be offering today that we are not, not because there is not research, no efforts, brilliant minds. And honestly, that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of good work done with, with, with that project, right? But um, we won't see that, right? Unfortunately, there were not, yeah, the, probably the right investor at the right moment or it didn't, it did not happen. So I think mm -hmm. it's very frustrating, right? So as a patient, I think, well, for, you know, just talking to you right now, obviously it's, I can, I can understand that it's, it's even worse, right? To hear when it's something specific that you think that maybe you would benefit from it. It's, um, it, it's a, the difference, there are different sides of, of the research, you know, it's uh, not only what it's the, the, well, the researcher or the university itself, all the people involved think that it's going to be useful and it is useful. And there is a lot of efforts and a lot of brains that have been working on that. Then there's the second step of it, right? That needs to make it to the market. And there are many other things that play a role there. And that's, uh, for me, I, I, I have also, uh, I, it's also frustrating, you know, for me, even if it's not as, I'm, as a patient, it's also as a, as a physician thinking that you could be helping people and you're not. Right, you mm -hmm. could be offering people, and you are not offering that, and it exists. It's it should be available, right? So I'm sure that that translates to many research, um, and uh, I think it's one of the hardest part in in this uh, in this field. Actually, I think you Good. probably live that as well. It's like so hard. It's really hard to do research. It's really hard to have results. It's really hard that you have the funding to progress. You have the, you know, we have the resources to to be able to make it happen, and then the last step, it doesn't happen for something. It doesn't seem that you know relevant, or it is probably right. It's it's you want to sell something in a market, mm -hmm. but uh, if you think even you if you are the patient, even if it would just help one patient, it's worth it, right? That's 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 how you as as a as a healthcare professional or a researcher, that's how you want to think. Of course, it's not. We all know that part's not that simple. But on, on the note of um, you know just technologies and and seeing where they can and can't go and market need, you and some of your colleagues have patented a surgical device, correct? Correct. Yeah. So now you've 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 seen the need room. 
um, you've gone ahead and gone through the navigated the you know engineering and or, or patenting this technology or this uh, surgical instrument but now is that something everybody's using now or is that something that is just intellectual property that still needs like millions of dollars to develop now i already know the answer to this but i'm throwing that question <laughs> at, throwing that question at you maybe to uh, if you want to unpack that one a little i bit. think it's so com- i you know for me again i am a clinician and I, you know, I did not have experience with this part of, you know, the other side of the project of the projects or, or in this case, the surgical device. It's so much work. It takes so much effort. And it's, I think it's really hard. It's like, you feel that, yeah, that's a no brainer. That's just going to help people. It's, you know, you put all the efforts, you want to do it. Um, maybe that's the naive version that you're having but then uh, only going through that process, it's really, really hard. And there are some, many other factors, right? That, that you, um, you don't really know well, but it's, that's how probably the market works, right? And uh, then it takes um, more efforts and well, it's, it's, um, no, it's a totally sure. different world. It's a different world, right? It's a, I, I feel that there is um, a huge gap to what the, researcher clinician or health or health professional sees and envisions that there's a clear benefit to get to that point right there's a big big gap and maybe in my case I, I did not have much experience on that but learning now a little bit more um it's it's a very complicated process right so it takes a lot to to make all these things happen right so probably um, again, going back to the vaccine, right? If there are other efforts and helps, then you know it would probably help many other things, right? I think we then we end up probably talking about funding and or investments, right? And and I think in research that should be key for progress. If you don't have that, it's it's quite limited. It's really difficult. Oh, for sure. And so in some cases, it's not a lack of invention. It's a lack of yes, I, I taking the me- invention and commercializing it uh, in a manner. I mean, I understand you can't just commercialize something for billions of dollars to uh, help 10 patients. I understand that side of it too, right? But um, I mean, it's just interesting for people to understand that, right? So um, in talking about, uh, I'm going to wrap up here with a a topic, if you don't mind, but I was going to bring up the the concept of artificial intelligence, um, but then move into uh, the idea of working in 3D, but just to comment on artificial intelligence and talk mm-hmm. about some companies, uh, I was reading recently about um, an ophthalmology tech company, a small, uh, they're about a 50 or $75 million company, so they're not that small, mm-hmm. but they um, have created some software that is going to help uh, diagnose, uh, I believe diagnose certain conditions like diabetic retinopathy and track the progression mm-hmm. of, of the disease using, you know, AI and uh, imaging. And I think that the, the eye is a very unique organ. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the only other one would be the skin, I guess, which is something that you can see very Easily visibly see. as well. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and use these types of um, take advantage of, you know, AI and advancing computer vision software and these technologies to help in uh, making consistent 
and accurate diagnoses, mm-hmm. tracking how a disease progresses, um, et cetera. Have you seen this type of thing in the clinic yet or uh, you, are you still, is it, for you, is it still something that's not being widely used but maybe slowly being adopted? I think the places that they're currently using, it's mostly for research at the moment. So it's not something that you already have at the clinic. But I think we're living a fascinating moment with all this. As you said, ophthalmology, it's quite unique because we do have access or the way that we can examine the patient, let's say, and acquire imaging. It's relatively easy. It's much harder to get the picture from the lungs, right? So we, with the eye, we do have direct access to it. So that allows us to have very good imaging. We work a lot with imaging. Uh, it's a specialty also. We use a lot of technology. So I think it's, we are in a very particular position to, to benefit from this and it's already happening, right? As, as you said, uh, using this technology for a screening process like diabetic retinopathy and many other things. It's exactly really, really fascinating. Um, if you take all the specialists in the world to look inside the eye and tell if that eye, not knowing where the eye is coming from and you look inside the eye you don't know if that is from a male or a female. You cannot tell. Okay, you, I, there's no retina specialist that can tell you that. But artificial intelligence can do that. They can just really? say it. Yes, it's it's. We don't know why, right? Um, so there are things like that. It's it's already happening. That things that we were not capable, right, to to even know that suddenly you you have this piece of information or you need to validate that. There are a lot of there's a lot of work to do, but. Uh, there's a clear benefit already with all this um, imaging that we have access that you can apply artificial intelligence and suddenly be a, a much better um, tool for, for screening, for detecting disease. And I think it's, it's just changing so fast. And well, um, it's not only artificial intelligence, the, the technology we're using, it's changing uh, quite a bit as well in surgery. We are operating with 3D systems. It's... Um, it's a very interesting era, I think, for, for us as, as a physician and for sure in ophthalmology, it's, it's uh, quite unique. Can you just talk, just to kind of, before we wrap it up, just talk a little bit yeah. about what it means now operating in 3D. So to operate uh, in the eye, you need to see inside. So to see inside, we would usually use a microscope. And now, instead of using that microscope, we have a heads-up display, meaning there's a high-resolution, huge screen where I'm seeing what's inside the eye on that screen in 3D. So the image is so much better that allows you to actually play with the technology itself, meaning there are different sort of filters. There are many, there are many things that you can do with technology that I would not be able to do with the microscope itself, right? So it's improving. Uh, the imaging that you're having while you're doing surgery and offering extra settings to even change the way you're operating. You can apply even some sort of scans that you can see in the same screen. The, the technology has evolved so much that um, the information we're having even now doing a surgery, which is in 3D um, compared to the microscope alone, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a game changer actually. You, you know, we do have this, this feeling now that things are, are definitely changing. Soon you're going to get replaced as a surgeon, right? <laughs> Maybe. T- 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 well, technology, it does, 
it does exist already. There is robotic surgery, you know, in other specialties, yeah. it's something very common, but in ophthalmology as well, that you started there, there are certain things that are gonna, be, I think you're gonna be a bit higher in ophthalmology, but it already exists, you know, even for these new um, genetic treatments that they need to be delivered in the eye, um, now robotic surgery can do it maybe safer. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's happening. It's definitely happening. So You're going to become a next teacher. Time, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Back to, back <laughs> teach the residents and that's it. Yeah. 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 Next time we talk, maybe I don't have a job anymore. You know, it's, you uh, it's, it's, it's definitely changing. It's happening. I don't think it'll happen that fast because I'm sure we'll talk soon, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I think it's a, it's a good point, but listen, I have about, uh, you know, 40 to 50 more hours of questions for you, which I, which is, is typical. And I think there's a lot of conversation we've had in the past that would be uh, great topics to bring up on the podcast that just people would enjoy um, hearing. You have a, a lot of experience as a researcher, as a, a, a clinician, you know, working in a lot of different places, doing uh, volunteer work elsewhere as a doctor. We even dive into that. There's so much that we can, we can kind of explore and unpack, but we can save that for some future episodes. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for uh, getting involved and sharing your stories with everybody listening. And um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, I was definitely happy to, to do it again. All right. Thank you. Thank you.